The Braving Business Podcast is brought to you by, well, me. I'm PJ Benoit and have been in the domestic and international logistics and transportation field for over three decades. Are you looking to ship literally anything, direct to consumer or business to business, small package, pallet and freight, truckload, international air and ocean, warehousing and distribution, and so much more? Let's connect. Go to shipwithpj.com to learn more. That's shipwithpj.com. And now for the show. Well, hello there. Hi there, PJ. How are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Hello, Blaine. How are you? I'm doing well, PJ. Good to meet you. (laughs) Good to meet you as well. So uh, we are on the cusp of... A nice long weekend. What are our plans? Well, uh, together or apart? Because I don't think we're going to see each other. We're not. Uh, we're not actually. Yeah, that's too bad. Um, yeah, you know what? I uh, tonight is my uh, son-in-law's thirtieth birthday, and as you would imagine, uh, a thirty-year-old would want to do on the night of his thirtieth birthday. Uh, he's choosing to spend it with his father-in-law. Mm. Um, so <laughs> my daughter decided that we're going to do a dinner tonight. So so I'm doing that. And, uh, you know, I've got a little road trip tomorrow. And um, so, yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to be a relaxing, joyful, long weekend. How about you? Uh, just laying low, right? It's going to be super hot yeah. here in Chicago. Unfortunately, of course, the weather gets hot right when the weekend comes. Super so. hot in Chicago. Th- those are not words you often hear said no, together. No, we a couple of weeks ago or week before last or whatever, we hit uh, 120 feel. What? Yeah, it's it's the hottest ever. The hottest ever recorded in Chicago. So um, it was terrible. We hated it. We're not used to it. Bring us the cold. We're fine with that. Heat, humidity, what the hell is that? We don't like it. We don't get it away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Each their own. You know, I I live in Tampa Bay because I love the the warmth and the heat and the fact that I can go jogging with my dog just about every day of the year and uh, do it in shorts. Mm. So there. Hey, I'm going to split the difference with you guys. I'm up on uh, Whidbey Island up near Seattle, and it's uh, 74 degrees here today. Beautiful weather. Uh, no humidity to speak of. And that's awesome. I'm going to go fishing this weekend. Good for you. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. What, and, and, what? and uh, yeah, Tal, it's interesting. Uh, today is my uh, grandson's, uh, my oldest grandson's birthday. Oh. Okay. Is he spending yeah. it with you, though? Huh? Is he yeah, spending actually, it with you? He is. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right. We're going to uh, actually go skydiving. That's awesome. So, All right. That's fantastic. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. You're you're saying you're gonna jump out of a perfectly working Wait, plane. I, you know what? I I totally glossed over that. You know what? I heard it. It entered my brain, and then I just didn't even comprehend what you just said. You're going what? I comprehend like, really? where? Yeah, <laughs> I, I used to fly jumpers years ago uh, as a pilot. Uh, uh, now, yeah, I'm at an age now where I need a medical clearance to jump, so I'm not gonna jump. Uh, uh-huh. Couldn't get my doctor sign off on that. Gotcha. I, okay. Not, not I, I feel a little bit better just because I didn't have a chance to, to, to talk to him about this. But my grandson's uh, my grandson is jumping. Wow. Yeah, Got so. it. Wow. That's uh, that's something. Yeah, wow. Isaac uh, Isaac Newton wouldn't sign off on me jumping out of a plane. So um, <laughs> there'd be a lot of gravitational pull on that. Uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. But uh, first, well, first, maybe we should tell people who the hell Blaine is. I mean, I was just to about Blaine to say and that. They don't even was, know who he is. So okay, all right. So, okay, all right. Blaine's the so, man. The, sorry to be impatient. No, yeah. no, 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 no. So 
Our guest today is author, television host, professor, consultant, CEO, and prolific entrepreneur, Blaine Bartlett. Blaine, pick a title, my God. Blaine is the author of five books, including the number one international bestseller, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. And his newest book is The Leadership Mindset Weekly. As CEO of Avatar Resources, which is a global leadership consultancy he founded in 1987, Blaine consults, advises, and coaches globally with leaders, executives, companies, and governments to change the way leadership is used to foster thriving through compassionate capitalism. He is internationally recognized as a leader, a leader development master, and through his work has personally delivered programs to and worked with more than 300,000 individuals, directly impacting more than 1 million people worldwide. He is a co-host of Office Hours on Apple TV, was featured in the TV series World's Greatest Motivators, and also featured in the movie and book Think and Grow Rich, The Legacy. In his spare time, which I don't even know how you have that, uh, Blaine is also an adjunct professor at Beijing University, managing director of Global Coaching Alliance, and sits on several boards. Blaine, um, Mr. Insomniac, it's an honor and uh, a privilege to have you on our show, Braving Business Podcast. Uh, PJ, it's, it's a thrill to be here, and I thank you for the invitation, uh, both you and Tal. Thank you. You you welcome, and you know we're honored to have you. As, as PJ said, it's a, it's a heck of, a, of an intro, and you know what? Um, we we are. I think this is the thirteenth or fourteenth episode we're recording on, on the season, and it's been like that. You know, we've had guest after guest with you know long introductions. And PJ and I, when we started the show, we we're like, you know, we're not going to do long introductions. We're just going to do, you know, this is our guest, and we'll talk it out. But the reality is, such accomplishments. How do you not, you know, make sure that uh, you give people the kudos they deserve, and you deserve plenty. Yeah. Um. So you know what? I'm just going to jump right in. I'd love to uh, get into the topic of compassionate capitalism, which is something that I'm uh, deeply passionate about. I've uh, I, I've read your book. I, I uh, I'm, I'm a fan of your thinking, uh, and I'd love to hear more. I'd love to, uh, my audience to hear more about uh, your background in leadership development. Talk to us about kind of what compassionate capitalism is and how how you you came to that idea, uh, and and to the extent you know it makes sense, tie it to you know resilience and overcoming obstacles, which I think is uh, part and parcel of uh, of what compassionate capitalism is about. Absolutely. Yeah. The um, compassionate capitalism of, came out of uh, some conversations I had with uh, John Mackey, uh, who founded uh, Whole Foods, co-founded Whole Foods, and Ross Isodia, who's a professor, you know, business professor at Babson University. Uh, they jointly co-authored a book called Conscious Capitalism. And in my conversation with them, um, both jointly and separately, uh, I, I kept coming back to a, a noticing that I had that consciousness wasn't enough. Now, you know, because you know what what they were doing in the book was they're saying we you know, expand your stakeholder universe. You're thinking about who are the actual stakeholders in the business. It's not just the shareholders; it's others. Yeah, and it you know, it's writ large. Uh, so that ripple effect kind of goes out there. But what was missing for me in, in um, the, the book uh, was how do you behave in a manner that is reflective of a recognition that you've got larger stakeholders? And that's where compassion came in. It's one thing to recognize that there's a larger stakeholder universe out there, but am I connected to it? 
And if I'm connected to it, how do I behave as a consequence of that connection? Because it's impossible to behave compassionately towards something if I don't feel connected to it. So all of this, you know, kind of a long story short here, uh, just pulling on that thread, um, ended up being this book called Compassionate Capitalism. And it was essentially just a way of me defining uh, something as an alternative model to crony capitalism. Uh, what you know, I wanted to I wanted to take Love a look that. at com- comparing the, the the behaviors of both, and the behaviors of crony capitalism result in what we have today: wealth disparity, uh, yeah. social unrest, and you know, blah blah blah. I mean, you can fill in the blanks: you know, environmental degradation, which would be the antithesis of what you get if people are acting and leaders are acting compassionately towards. Um, the folks that are impacted by their decisions. By the way, did did you expect this book to be an international number one bestseller? I mean, when you wrote this book, did you know the kind of audience that was going to end up loving this book? I never expect my books to sell. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, Truly, I mean, I I write them for myself more than anything else. Uh, Now, do I have an audience in mind? Yeah, I do. Um, But I was thrilled. We hit uh, number one in five five international markets in uh, various business categories uh, with that book when we released it. And and that for me it was kind of like a proof of concept. It's kind of like okay, there's there's uh, receptivity to this message, uh, evidently, and it's being used right now in some college curriculums. And um, yeah, so I'm I'm, a, I'm thrilled. I'm very proud of that book, actually. That's amazing. Well, you you coined a term, really, right? Like you've you've yeah. created you've created a movement, and uh, I, capitalism. In and of itself, the word capitalism has such a a negative connotation, right? Depending yeah. on 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 who's using it and, and how you you experience it out in the world today, um, have getting people to wrap their mind around the mindset that capitalism can also be compassionate. What was that like? Is that was that like a, a harder task than you thought, or, or like what was that like? I, I remember, you know, PJ. This, I mean, oh, this goes back uh, before I wrote the book. Uh, this goes back. I was invited to speak at a, a Renaissance weekend. Um, you, you mean, know, they, you mean they, like guys with swords? No, no, no. Actually, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, President Clinton, Al Gore. I mean, you know, the, the Hilton Head, and yeah, you know, gathering of Nobel laureates and chief justices. I mean, all kinds of people come together here. And so I thought, well, I'll give this thing a flyer. And so I, uh, in one of the one of the hallmarks of the Renaissance weekend is everybody speaks in some way, shape, or form. Um, and it's just about sharing ideas. And so I thought, well, I'll give this thing a flyer. And I, ha- <laughs> they put me in a room with basically a group of Wall Street bankers. And so I was talking about compassionate capitalism. And <laughs> you, know, you could, you know, as my mother used to say, you could have heard. Uh, it was like a lead. You know, lead is, is that like and, talking about being a vegetarian with a bunch? Is is that like being uh, talking about vegetarianism with with uh, with ranchers? Do you think? Yeah, or is that about yeah. the same thing? You know, it reminded me of Oprah, you know, <laughs> talking mm, to the cattle yeah. ranchers in Texas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of like, okay, that's a, that was a loud thud, um, but it was also, yeah, and this is where you know, obstacles come into play. I think really interestingly, um, that it was feedback about something that. Uh, got my attention. Okay. If somebody that's in charge of, uh, monetary systems, uh, don't resonate with this, what's missing. Yeah. Either in my messaging or what's missing in the consciousness of those that are listening. And either one of those becomes a gateway towards continual movement. So, 
Uh, and that actually came to become how I defined, you know, success. Uh, you know, it's the process of continuous, you know, developing the capacity to continuously start over. And that's that's essentially how I define success. And so I looked at that and I went, okay, well, okay, let me retool this a little bit here with two things in mind. You know, what's my messaging and what might be the consciousness that can provide an opening here? If I can speak to their language, could I open the door a little bit wider? And, you know, fast forward, actually, it looks like we're able to. Oh, that's awesome. We're, we're definitely we're definitely going to come back to uh, the point you just made about uh, continuously starting over as a definition of success, which I think is a super interesting thought. I, I, you know, the thing PJ said is kind of uh, bouncing around in my head. You said capitalism has negative connotations, and it does for some people. I think, you know, interestingly, I mean, capitalism uh, is neither immoral or moral. It's amoral. And, and I think that adding, um, you know... Uh, a word like compassionate in front of it changes that dynamic, takes it from something that, um, you know, is uh, ephemeral and makes it more real. Uh, mm -hmm. It it brings it into people's lives. Um, and uh, it's one of the things that I, I loved about the book when I read it. Um, it, it resonated with me. Um, and, and it was, you know, I think a unique perspective because I think, you know, for a lot of people in business, um, there was a time, and I think I think that time has passed, fortunately, where uh, talking about your values in the context of the of business was not perceived as uh, a, a good way. Um, you know, organizations, corporations usually stayed out. There've even been some recent instances of that, but but by and large, we now are in a different world where you know consumers, especially, are looking to do business with organizations who represent their values. And mm -hmm. I think compassionate capitalism is is now in vogue. When you when you started with this, it was not. And I and I give you some credit uh, for 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 bringing it into uh, into the mainstream the way that that it is today. Uh, but let's talk about that point you just made. So you know, uh, continuously starting over uh, is 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 how you define success. And obviously, this this podcast is about overcoming obstacles, resilience. Um, and perseverance. And, and I'd, I'd love for you to tell us about your own entrepreneurial journey. Was there any specific setback that uh, significantly shifted your perspective on what it takes to be successful? And also, how did you wind up having that, that perspective that you know, continuously starting over is in fact success? Oh, I'll answer that question first, and then I'll you know, laughingly come back into, are there any setbacks? <laughs> the short answer is yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, my dad was a serial entrepreneur. Um, and if I've got a model for success in life, it would be him. Now, he was never wildly wealthy in any way, shape, or form, but he started a whole bunch of businesses, and every one of them were actually successful. Uh, he didn't like running businesses. He liked starting businesses. He loved finding opportunities and, and you know, bringing a solution to that problem that he identified and and then just kind of leveraging it and then uh, you now selling the business or uh, having my mom run it or whatever <laughs> kind of went on with that. But the idea, uh, How did she like I didn't that? have words for this back then. Was but she the into idea, that? Did, did she like that he was? They worked together. I mean, they gotcha. were hand in glove their entire married life. Oh, and uh, nice. yeah, they were married almost 60 some odd years uh, before mom passed and then uh, dad shortly after. But um they uh, he continuously started over, and there was no pejorative around it. It was just kind of like that's just kind of what we did. And somebody a long time ago told me that you know people find themselves in ruts a lot. And one thing my dad absolutely was uh, 
fanatical about was not getting in a rut. Uh, and, the, and the person that was talking to me about this said, but, you know, Blaine, do you know what a rut is? And I said, well, you know, enlighten me. You know, what do you think a rut is? I know what it is visually, and I can you know, imagine it on a road. He said, a rut is nothing more than a coffin with the ends kicked out. Hmm. And I went, whoa, okay. And that's how most people find themselves living their lives. They get into a position, they get into a role, they get into a company, they get into whatever they're into, and they think that this is going to stabilize and it's going to be this way forever. That wasn't my dad. Um, he was, yeah, as soon as uh, it got to a point where he got what he needed out of it, yeah, he was looking for another opportunity. And he never left anybody in the lurch. And there's a lot to be said about some of the ways that he handled, some of the ways that he moved. Um, yeah, you know, never burned any bridges. I mean, it was always with a generative uh, outlook. Uh, and this is the part of where the compassion came back into play. Uh, and again, I didn't have words for it back then. But just you know, using him as an exemplar, uh, as a model for what was possible. Um, so fast forward, yeah, you know, I've started a number of businesses. Uh, in '87, we started my company, Avatar Resources, and we ended up with yeah you know, you know, affiliate offices in five different countries. Um, which you know, gave me a lot of opportunity to fail because I wasn't you know, on, on the ground with a lot of these things. And I did, really didn't have the infrastructure uh, necessary to, to run something that broad. Um, and, you know, stuff happens. I mean, just, you know, stuff happens. Uh, well, you know, one of the things, and this, and everything's got a, a two sides to it. Every up, yeah, you know, every up has a down, every inside has an outside. And I remember distinctly, and I was just writing about this for uh, an article I'm putting together right now. There was an opportunity. We were really in a cash crunch. Uh, and this goes back, oh, maybe uh, 20 years or so ago. Um, and I had an opportunity to uh, you know, sign a big contract with a large uh, fortune company. Uh, their, their Hong Kong, China subsidiary. Uh, and it was, you know, you know, very large six figures. It would have handled every one of our monetary needs. I mean, for for the yeah, near and midterm, it was a big deal. And the managing director that was uh, my counterpart that we were working with was just a prick. Excuse mm. my language on this, but that's all right. He was the antithesis of every value that we said was important uh, in the way that we wanted to work with ourselves and work with our client. And I tolerated it. I tolerated it. I tolerated it. And there was just the, this nagging thing. And just about a week before we'd gotten the final draft on the contract put together, uh, I just couldn't do it. I, I uh, called him up and I said, we're not going to, we're not going to move forward with this. And he went ballistic. Um, and I was not going to compromise our, uh, our values. One of the hardest business decisions I'd made because it really put the organization on the precipice of actually going, you know, going under. Um, but yeah, the cost on the, on the side of morale, on the side of value, you know, I mean, integrity, I mean, all that stuff just wasn't going to be worth it. So I did, I pulled the plug on it and then we scrambled and yeah, there were probably about four months of very sleepless nights. Uh, how do I pay the staff? How do I keep things together? I mean, yeah, you know, the, the, the typical entrepreneurial journey, I say typical, you know, we each make our own you know, catastrophes. Uh, but yeah, you, know, you, you kind of keep uh, the light in the tunnel shining uh, and, and keep moving towards it, and that's what we ended up doing. And, and we we survived, yeah. And not only did we survive, we ended up thriving. 
Awesome. You know that the story that you just told it's it's an it's a fascinating story. It's a beautiful story, and and I want to share uh, because I want to be transparent. That there were moments in my career where I had clients or potential clients that I found I'm going to use the word despicable, just in terms of their values, their morals, uh, how they treated people. And I wish I could say that each and every one of those times I put my values first and and walked away. But sometimes I was too scared to. Sometimes I felt like, you know what, I'm I, this is too important, and I've mm. uh, and I and I and I rationalized to myself why I should uh, suck it up or put aside my values and morals. And I'll tell you what, there was never a single time that I did that that I didn't regret it. Not a single yeah. time. Yeah, you know, one yeah that that. The idea of compassion, most people, when people hear compassion, they think it's kind of soft and squishy. It's kind of like, oh, kumbaya, and, you know, let me give you a hug. It's a bad day. That is not what compassion's about at all. Compassion, I have to be compassionate about my values. Yeah, I have to nurture them. I have to take care of them. And that puts me in the position of making some incredibly hard decisions sometimes. Um, yeah. yeah. Earl Nightingale was asked one time, how do you define success? And Earl Nightingale, for those of you that don't know who he was, uh, back in the 50s, he was the most recognized recording voice uh, on the planet. Mm. I mean, literally, he was one of the very first people that you know, did recordings, you know, talking, you know, motivation. He, he was the father of the motivational uh, speaking uh uh, industry. But he was asked, how do you define success? And he thought for a little bit and he said, success is the continual pursuit of a worthy ideal. Now that worthy ideal is the is the catalytic piece. Worthy ideal speaks to values. It speaks to inspiration. It speaks to impact. And when you've got value, inspiration, and impact bundled together, you very seldom will go wrong. It's just an amazing way to work. That's amazing. That's uh, you should write a book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or five or five. Yeah, really? No, the, Blaine dropping knowledge bombs all over the place. I, I love this. Um, okay. So, so in your, in your latest book, uh, which is the leadership mindset weekly, you had shared some insights about, or you share your insights about what, is effective leadership and how do you feel is the best way to intertwine effective leadership with resilience and and you know when you're facing significant challenges or or you're you know you're you're back up against a wall how do you parlay that yeah uh that's a great question pj um i didn't you know, i had to come up with a definition of leadership that held water if mm. you know, so to speak so, I mean, since Hannibal came across the Alps with the elephants, people have been talking about leadership. And most people in their minds have a hierarchical you know, model. You know, it's command and control, that sort of thing. Um, and that, I think, was a very useful model at one point in time. Um, it's not any longer. And so where I've come to define and how I've come to define leadership is it's a process of influencing. So there's four pieces to this. Influencing others, which is the opposite of command and control. Influencing in order to co-create coordinated movement in the pursuit of a worthy ideal. So influencing others, there's a state of being that the leader now has to occupy that causes movement. Mm -hmm. 
that is generative. There's an influential you know, dynamic in play here. Co-creation. I've got an idea, but if it's just my idea and you don't own it, you're not going to come along with me when the going gets tough. And this is where resilience starts to come into play in an organization. So co-creation is ownership transfer. How, you know, how do I actually work with you influentially so that you begin to go, aha, God, there's a, there's a there there for me, not just for you. And then the coordinated movement, yeah, we're going to be in a dance and we will step on our, you know, each other's toes. There is no question about that. But how do we coordinate the conversation to continue moving forward, even though we've got bruised toes and don't take it personally? It's you know, And it really has to do with that worthy ideal, the for the sake of what that we're doing this. So when we bring those together, yeah, again, in combination, we got impact, influence, and inspiration. And now you have a recipe, and it's actually a, a four-ingredient recipe that looks like inspiration, impact, and influence, but a four-element, four, four, uh, four-ingredient recipe that combines and produces resilience. Yeah, and resilience goes back to the capacity to continuously start over. Yeah, developing that capacity, and 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 we've got a whole model around what that capacity actually looks like. So, so in your view, as you think about leadership, um, you know, in, in approaching the nearly the middle, I can't believe it, but we're you know we're almost halfway, uh, almost a quarter of the way through the uh, uh, the century already. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, it's insane. As as you think about leadership um, today, would you say that the biggest change is that you know you, you said command and control has 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 gone you know uh, the way of the dinosaurs, and I think that's true. I think there are still some organizations that are attempting that. I would possibly say Elon Musk is trying to do that with uh, yeah. with X, uh, formerly known as Twitter, uh, and I think that that's. Um, you know, I, I I think that that's a much harder road to road than doing what you just talked about, which I equate with choreographing a dance. Um, so, you know, when you choreograph a dance, you're not actually controlling the movements of the bodies of the people on the dance floor, but you're telling them uh, directionally and ideally what you're hoping to accomplish and and yeah. how their interaction with the other dancers is going to create some something beautiful and harmonious that that would be enjoyable to watch. Um what is it that you think at this juncture, if you know, if I'm a young leader, I'm just coming into my own, um, and and by young, I don't necessarily mean by age. It could be that I'm just beginning to to finally have gotten the opportunity to lead. What would be one or two things that you would suggest that I, I start from uh, as I as I think about how to um, move people in the direction of um, dancing in a more choreographed way without. Um, coming across like I am essentially trying to command and control the situation? Yeah, great question. Um, excuse me. Uh, two things come to mind immediately on this. One is, you know, kind of a metric, you know, it's kind of the litmus test of my effectiveness. And what I would use there and what I actually do encourage the folks that I you know, work with uh, to use is what I call elegance. And I'm not talking about sartorial elegance. Yeah. Yeah. When you when you write code for a computer or for software, Elegant code is code that does what it's supposed to do without any unintended consequences, any unintended results. And the command and control model typically has a whole lot of unintended consequences associated with it. I got to go back and clean up after myself, and there's more energy and, and resources wasted on cleanup than there is in the actual process of getting things to move forward. So 
using a metric of elegance. Yeah, is is what I'm doing elegant? How do people feel about themselves when they're in my presence? Do they feel engaged? Do they feel inspired? Do they feel yeah, whatever? Or do they feel shamed, belittled, put down? Yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. I can challenge somebody and have them rise to the occasion if there's an inspirational component to that. So elegance becomes part of that. The other one, and this is rooted in emotional intelligence, is developing a practice that continuously requires me to become more and more and more aware of myself. Yeah. Self-awareness. Yeah. What's going on in here? Because everything out there is nothing more than a reflection of what's going on in here. It literally is that. Yeah. The world is a mirror. And it's a mirror of both my individual, but also our collective in an organization, our collective consciousness. And it's and it's writ large out there in the results that we're producing. And so, you know, that awareness, that self-awareness, what is it that I, you know, triggered here? How did I move that? That kind of an awareness allows me to move to myself first before I start correcting anybody out there. Because they don't need correcting as much as I need to take a look at, okay, what was what was the miss on my side? Mm. I Blaine, when are you opening your church, dude, or your cult? I'm, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> it's, it's, I, everything you're saying is, uh, it's, it's so. How uh, do even say it? It's mind blowing, but also it's just natural. Like it's, it like everything you're you're saying is just very. I don't want to say it like it's as it should sense. be. It's it, as it, it should is. be, it but it's not necessarily. It's self-evident and yet, it's yet and yet and yet elusive, right? So, right, I right. mean, as, I can, I could, uh, again, being transparent, I've spent most of uh, most of my career, as a lot of entrepreneurs do, uh, offending, uh, not not taking to heart, uh, you know, the impact I had on people and focusing more on the bottom line results. And it took me years and some failures. Uh, to recognize that maybe that's by some people's definition success, but it's not the kind of success I wanted. And unfortunately, I want to be clear. I think people that uh, have worked with me over the years would tell you that for the most part, I was a very generous, very engaged, very uh, loving uh, and mentoring individual. But when I wasn't, um, I was offending and uh, and offensive. And it was because of lack of self-awareness. It was because I didn't quite understand what was triggering me uh, mm-hmm. and and how what was triggering me was impacting how it was coming across. And it takes some practices. You're exactly right. I mean, this is not just a matter of I wake up today and I decide I'm not going to offend. You have yeah. to understand what caused you to offend. You then have to develop the practices to help you see very clearly when you are offending or about to offend and learn how to... M- modify behaviors, uh, your behavior first and foremost, um, towards something more constructive. And it's, yes, PJ, you're right. It's straightforward. If you think about it, don't offend, yeah. <laughs> lead, yeah, easy. lead by not offending. And yet it's elusive and a lot of leaders, uh, fall short. Well, so, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I've been learning about this in the sandbox when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah. Right? How do you play together? No, and it's uh, I'm I'm a little bit different in that you know I've I've had a lot of entrepreneurial experience. My my father was also an entrepreneur, but I've also worked as a regular 
Joe, right? And I've I've worked for extremely large corporations, uh, one of the top five brands in the world. And and I when I was there, I took it as a challenge to see how far I can get, and I got really far, which is great. Um, I've also worked at very small startups and and in between, and so I've had the um, I've had the the ability or the honor to be uh, in the presence of many different leadership types and some were awesome and some were nightmares. And so it luckily for me, it allowed me to, cause I can be as pompous as anybody, but it allowed me to understand, Oh, I don't want to be like that. Right? Like I, I know how that made me feel. I know how from a leadership standpoint, I got the ideal. I got the vision, right? That's why I'm here. Cause I believe that what we're doing is going to be successful. However, you can't treat everyone like dirt, right? Like it's, it, it's given me a, a little bit of perspective that I you shouldn't treat You shouldn't treat anyone like dirt. I mean, that, that took me a while to realize. And um, you know, it's, it's probably my, my best lesson. And the thing I'm proudest of is now recognizing that you can't treat anyone any less than you want to be treated. And Correct. the moment you do, uh, you're going to struggle as a leader and as a person, period. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a really quick story. When, when I grew up, one of, the, uh, one of the people that my mom was really close to was a gentleman by the name of Ernie Albright. And Ernie Albright was one of the most fascinating people I ever met. He survived polio as a child. He became a pilot. He um, became a, a, a world-renowned safari hunter first as an actual hunter. And then as he, you know, got more self-aware, he was like, you know what? I don't like just killing animals anymore. Now he's a photography guy, right? So he's traveled the world. He also ran Pan Am for the far East and for Asia and the Pacific. And I would go to his office, just mean little, little guy. I'd go to his office and he would take me down the elevator and he treated everyone in that elevator even though there were different companies, whatever, he treated everyone the same and he was always cracking jokes and he was always making people laugh. And that's where I kind of learned like humor is such a great, uh, uh, reducer of barriers, right? If you can, if you can come across, if you can make someone laugh, if you can make them smile, that that's where I was like, you know what? I want to make someone smile every day. If I can make a person smile that day, then I've done something good. I've, I've, I've had a positive impact and, and he just, I, I won't tell you the joke that he told in the elevator, but, um, why not? <laughs> well, is, it, is it, is so, it, uh, it depends. Is that a joke that in 2023 you can't tell oh, anymore? No, you Cause could, then you, you could, shouldn't tell it. You could still tell it. So we got this elevator it. and it's packed. The elevator is packed. Right. And so, and I'm, you know, again, I'm like, I don't even know how long. 10, 12, whatever. And I'm like, Hey, Uncle Ernie, how are you doing? He's like, Oh, PJ, let me tell you, I had a bowel movement this morning. I lost 12 pounds. I feel great. Right. And so <laughs> everyone, everyone on the elevator is just cracking up. And I was like, What's a bowel movement? But anyway, it was, <laughs> it was really, it was really funny. And so I just learned, just like, you know, what Blaine, you're saying is like, Blaine, Blaine I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you had no, under no circumstances do you think we were going to be talking about bowel movements on today's <laughs> podcast? Well, would that, that be not, right? Would that be fair? Not on the radar. Not on the radar. At yeah. All sorry. Nope. Sorry. I, I like to throw some curveballs. Um, but it, it was just, it was just a great example of this is a guy who is by on, on every piece of paper you want to write incredibly successful and incredibly influential. And yet he is as human as they get. And, and that's something I've, I've carried with me my whole life. Yeah. 
you know, you, you, when you when we talk about resilience, and that's a large theme of this 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 program, mm-hmm. authenticity comes into play. I think for sure, people that are that have a predisposition towards resilience, if I could just kind of frame it that way, are people that are authentic. Yep. You know, they're they're willing to laugh at themselves. They're willing to not take you know, not take life too seriously. Uh, yeah, and I was asked one time, you know, how do you define authentic? You know, I, I do a, a, a program for the American Association of Physician Leaders um, on their on their uh, training faculty, and somebody asked me because the program I do is authentic, you know, authenticity and leadership, and they said, well, how do you define leadership or uh, authenticity? And I said, well, you know, because um, I looked at Kierkegaard, I look at you know, I mean, I, you know, Jung, you know, lots of definitions. I basically came down to it's when I stop trying to manage your perception of me and just show up. Mm. Yeah. That, that's when I get to be authentic is when I stop worrying about and trying to manage your perception of me. And I say, okay, this is just what it is. You get me the way I am. And that's what you're describing in the elevator, right? Yeah. This is just the way I am. It's it's not situationally specific. I and mean, yeah, who I am comes through. Now, will I put on a different role every now and then? Yeah. But the who that is wearing that suit of clothes comes through. And that's, that's the that that's where authenticity really has power for a leadership uh, role because it requires vulnerability. Yep. And people can't connect if you've got a facade. If you take the facade away, now they've got an opportunity to connect with you, and it requires vulnerability to do that. Oh man, that's that's awesome. it's, it's a great point, and I I wholeheartedly agree. And it's and it's it's uh, unfortunate I think that for a lot of leaders. The starting point is to feel that um, you you have to come across as knowing more, being brighter, working harder, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think that's changing. I think there's much, much more appreciation for work-life balance, much, much more appreciation for collaboration. Mm. Um, but there's still, I think, this underlying, I, you know, I talk to, you know, my consulting practice, I talk to, uh, to, to CEOs and startup uh, founders. And there's still that mindset. We've even heard a little bit of that on some of our interviews uh, of, well, I, I show up at 7 a.m. and I'm the last to leave and I'm I'm this and I'm that. And that type of mindset, I think, is frankly less likely to lead to long-term success. Uh, certainly might not lead agree. to long-term success as an individual. I think you're going to burn yourself out. I think you're going to be less effective as a, as a partner and as a parent or as a human being. But as a leader, I mean, just as a leader, I actually think you're ultimately going to be less effective. Well, you know, yeah, you, you mentioned life, uh, work-life balance. I think we got that you know, formula wrong. I think it actually needs to be life-work balance. Mm-hmm. You put life in the front and work. Lane, that should be the title of your next book. Do, can, can, can I get some royalties? That should be the title of your next book. The life-work <laughs> balance. Reversing the, life, the balance. mindset. Man. What a great idea. I'll co-write it with you if you'd like. I mean, just, you know, just say I the I love word. that. Yeah, we can talk about that one. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> I, I want to ask you about, uh, you know, you, you've had the incredible uh, good fortune of not just working with uh, domestic leaders, but also global leaders, mm. and in, in some cases, heads of government. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, are there any common threads around resilience that you're noticing that that are that go that are irrespective of culture or region or you know gender, are there certain things that leaders who reach a certain level of you know of of uh, a prominence mm-hmm. have in common when it comes to resilience? In your view, you know, uh, 
I have not been asked that question before. I love that. Um, what immediately pops into mind, uh, yeah, I remember a conversation I had with Yorma Ola, who was the CEO of Nokia. Uh, and I did a lot of work with Nokia back in the 19, late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, and the, the Finns, and, and Nokia is a Finnish company, uh, the Finns have got a particularly, uh, uh, what's, what, what's the word I'd use here? Uh, a particular soft spot, I guess it would be for the value of humility. As a matter of fact, mm. um, Nokia at the time had humility as one of their core values. I don't know that they still do. I haven't visited that for a while. But my experience with leaders that have actually achieved the kind of resilience that we're, we're, that we're actually referencing here, they tend to be humble. You know, there, there there is a certain amount of humility that comes into play here. Um, and I think where that gets captured best is out of some Stoic philosophy. Uh, you know, Cato and uh, Marcus Aurelius, you know, what I have control over in my life are my thoughts, my emotions, and my behaviors, period, the end. That's all I can control. Everything else is a crapshoot. Now, I can have plans, I can have desires, I can have expectations. But when things go sideways, and this is where resiliency comes in, if I feel as if that result is me, I'm dead in the water. That result's just going to be what the result is. I did my best. I brought everything to the table that I knew how to bring. And now it's back to the drawing board. And you know, one one of the ways that I look at resiliency has to do with the language, the internal language structures that people operate off of, and language creates and, and also reflects reality. And most people are judgment machines, and it's good, bad, it's right, wrong. I like it, I don't like it, and that's a continual, perpetual conversation that's going internally, and it gets expressed externally. And the pro and it's judgment. The problem with judgment is it stops motion. Leadership is an activity that is intended to create motion. And when judgment comes into play, motion stops because people contract, they get defensive. Yeah, they start deflecting, they start excusing. They start, I mean, all that stuff comes into play. So the, these leaders that are highly resilient, they by and large don't focus on good, bad, right, wrong. Uh, they don't focus on I like it, I don't like it. Their focus primarily is on is this working or not working? Which is a values-free assessment of just what transpired. It doesn't assign yeah, a, uh, uh, an artificial value to it that is usually inherent in the individual. You know, my my schooling, my family of origin, you know, my culture, whatever it is. Yeah, take the value structure out, and I don't mean values, but I mean the value: good, bad, right, wrong. Is it working or not working? And this is where compassion comes into play. Uh, if my decision is going to have a detrimental effect on a stakeholder out there, that's probably not going to be working long term. I mean, I go back to that conversation about uh, you know the contract uh, that I <laughs> said no to. Uh, that wasn't going to work long term. Yeah. Uh, now, would it have been good to or bad? Yeah, I could have you know, gotten into that wormhole and stopped everything Yeah, as I kind of befuddled myself. But as soon as I went to, this isn't going to work, it freed me up. It literally just freed me up. 
to go somewhere else to do something different and to look at alternatives. Yeah. The beauty of, of that, you know, you move into evaluation, not judgment. You begin to connect dots in different ways. You see things that weren't visible before. And that's what the power of is this working or not working begins to illuminate. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. It, it, it's interesting because I, I also very much, uh, particularly over the last few years have, have come to view judgment as, uh, as generally toxic and oftentimes uh, counterproductive. Uh, and I like, I love the imagery of it stops motion. I hadn't yes. thought of it in those terms before, and it makes a lot of sense. And by the way, this is not just true in business, it's true in life. It's true mm-hmm. in your relationship with your significant other. It's Absolutely. true in your relationship with your children, right? And uh, yeah. and many of us, many of us grew up, um, you know, with, with uh, parents of a different era who themselves probably grew up in cultures that oftentimes were very judgmental. So judgy. So yeah. judgy. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, it took me many years to, to uh, recognize that judgment was holding me back, that I was constantly doing exactly what you just said, Blaine, uh, judging uh, inside my head often, sometimes even speaking it out loud, uh, and not necessarily recognizing that I was uh, oftentimes stopping motion. I, you know, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I love that. Um, I have this question for you, though, because, you know, as I think about the decision you made to not work with the jerk, right? On some level, that's judgment, right? You made a judgment call. What's the difference between a judgment call and judgment? Yeah, a judgment call, that's a great, boy, that's great, yeah. uh, that that distinction. A judgment is, you know, again, steeped in my value set. Yeah, and usually it's a belief system. Yeah, well, it's always going to be a belief system that's in play. Mm-hmm. A judgment call this is where that evaluation comes into play, and it's predicated on a for the sake of what? What is it that I'm actually trying to true to? And I, yeah, am I going to get it right all the time? No, that's why it's called a judgment call. I mean, it's kind of like everything, all the data I've got right now says, if I go that way, it's likely not going to work. If I go that way, it's likely going to work. So does this work or not work? And the judgment call is basically utilizing the 80% of data that I've got. I'm never going to have 100% and just pulling the trigger on it. Yeah, and, you know, Earl Nightingale, or not Earl, Napoleon Hill. Uh, highly successful people make quick decisions and then stick with them Yeah, over the long haul. So, and that's organized around, does this work or not work? Not is it good, bad? Not is it right, I love wrong? That. I love yeah. that. I mean, what a... What a th- Fabulous answer. It makes so much sense to me. Thank you. I think you've, uh, I'm going to be thinking about that after the podcast because, you know, the struggle is this. I mean, when you're a CEO, when you're a startup entrepreneur, when you're a leader, you are hired to make decisions and decisions on some level represent judgment, but it's not, it's the judgment call. I love that. It is about uh, being able to determine whether uh, this is leading you towards the outcome you're looking for. And that outcome is values based. Uh, and that is a difference uh, and a good one. And I also, wow. I'll also throw in there that judgment. If you're, if if we're talking about the stopping of motion, which again, Blaine, fantastic visual, um, and you're incorporating that with self thought as an entrepreneur, and you're being harsh on yourself as judgment, that kills resiliency, yes. right? That yeah. that does not allow you to move forward. Yeah, yeah. Everything is energy, and so what contributes to the expression of energy or what constrains it. Judgment constrains the expression of energy. Love that. What do you, what's your self-talk? I mean, how, how do you, do, do you take uh, 
extra measures to ensure that you're gentle with yourself? Do you think it's important for a person to be gentle with themselves? Absolutely. I absolutely do. Um, you know, research shows we have between 72 and 76, 77,000 thoughts a day. You know, which, I mean, just a mind, you know, it's kind of what? And, and I've seen that study replicated a couple of different times. Most of us aren't aware of those thoughts. They're just kind of, but it'd be on the popcorn, just kind of popping off in there. The ones that stick are the ones that I want to pay attention to, the three o'clock in the morning conversations. That's typically when people are most harsh on themselves. And when they pop, you know, eyelids pop open at 3 a.m. and you go, you idiot. It's kind of like, okay, stop, (laughs) back that truck up. So I've actually over time become fairly mindful of that. And I use the word mindful uh, very specifically here. I want to be aware, and this is self-awareness again. The the power of awareness is it illuminates choices that I wasn't seeing before. That's the power of awareness. Increase awareness, increase choice-making capacity, increasing choice-making ability. Um, And I want to be aware of what these thoughts are. I start noticing patterns. Okay, how often does that repeat itself? Okay, if it's repeating itself far too frequently, I need to do something about that. Change the internal, I begin to change the external. Hmm. Love that. Um, I, I want to talk about one more topic that I think, uh, I mean, I, I didn't intend to go there, but I think I'd, I want to hear your thoughts on it. So entrepreneurs, and you, you said entrepreneurs oftentimes make quick decisions, and I think that's true, and I think it's needed. But it's also a very fine line between making quick decisions and being impulsive or mm-hmm. or acting from an incomplete set of information uh, driven more by emotion, which... Again, to be candid, because I uh, like to first point the finger at myself, was something that I struggle with, and to a certain extent, still struggle with. It's my tendency to I'm, I I start from a place of motion and looking to act, and sometimes to my own detriment. What advice would you give uh, someone who is either an entrepreneur, or leader, or just a, a person seeking to improve themselves to help them evaluate whether something that they might choose to do is within the realm of Okay, that's you know. Look, you're you're trying to build a business, and you're going to need to make decisions, and so that's fine. As opposed to something that is actually just impulsive. Yeah, um, that's a great question again, uh, Tal. Uh, this is where you know for me, yeah. Simon Sinek talks about you know the why, you know, get the mm-hmm. why right. Uh, again, I kind of think that's an incomplete description of what actually goes on with entrepreneurs, particularly successful ones. Highly successful entrepreneurs have a not only a why for the business, but they've got a for the sake of what that informs that why. Yeah, I'm going to do this. Why? Well, yeah, because the market needs this solution. For the sake of what does the market need that solution? That's a bigger elephant, <laughs> if you will. So if I've got a for the sake of what that is particularly clear, and this is where inspiration, impact, and uh, uh, influence comes into play here. If I've got that, I can I can override it in, in a, a knee-jerk emotional response to that looks good. And again, I use the word good here. It's you know that it, it's kind of like yeah, it looks good, it feels good, but will it work? That's the that's the that's the safe check. You know the uh, the governor, if you will. I reference it against before I before I pull the trigger against that for the sake of what. I feel wow. compelled so, so to do this. Here's what I'm taking. Here's what I'm taking away from that. I'm taking away from that that if you want, if you have issues of impulsivity, or you think you may, then preparing for yourself a list of two or three questions 
that you turn to before you act yep. would probably significantly improve your decision making and significantly reduce the likelihood that you're going to have regret because at, at bare minimum you will have thought through the bigger picture and the context would mm-hmm. that be right would you agree with that plane absolutely and, and you will use the word context yeah a decision is a content piece within a larger context frame context is what gives meaning to every all of the content that kind of lives inside that context so one of the things that I've done is, you know, if I'm making a decision, I want to stop. And this is where the question comes in. I want to stop and, and, and ask myself, okay, two or three ripples out, who's impacted and what is that impact? I know what the immediate one likely will be, but there's consequences that you know, kind of ripple out. And if I can play that scenario out a little bit, I might kind of go, you know, that probably not going to be working as workable as I would like it to be. It may take care of the immediate problem, and and not, you know there's a whole problem solving model you know that we can work with around that. So, so give, give our viewers problems, and listeners, if people were to walk away, maybe they want to go grab a pen really quick. The two or three or pause, hit pause. I forget there's podcasts you can hit pause, right? It's yeah, not live radio. Um, <laughs> if if you had to recommend the two or three questions that you think uh, people who are concerned about impulsivity and want to make sure that they are being thoughtful should ask themselves before a decision, what, what would those two or three questions be? For the sake of what am I making this decision? And two or three ripples out. I know what the immediate solution will likely solve. I mean, this decision will have this effect. But what effect will that effect have and then what's the effect that that effect will have? If I can imagine two or three ripples out, that will give me greater data because usually I'm not operating with the full uh, data set. Yeah, I'm never going to have 100 you know, 100%. So, uh, you know, ideally I want to pull the trigger at about 80%. <laughs> but I want to be informed enough to know that that 80% is likely to produce the kind of result that I say I want. That's where that for the sake of what comes in. So... Identify the for the sake. DJ, we're gonna we're gonna create and sell shirts on our website that say for the sake of what? Yeah. Quote Lane Bartlett. We might have to give him some royalties. I don't know about that. Maybe, (laughs) but I love that. I love that, and I I really really like that second third ripple. I mean, yeah. First of all, I want to say that's not just in business. I mean, that's in life. I mean, when you're about to have an argument with your significant other, or you're about to do whatever you're gonna do that you know you may want to think three and four times about before you do it. It's great to ask yourself for the sake of what am I doing it? Am I just doing it to feel better about myself, to be right, to mm-hmm. to to rub their nose in it? And what will be the impact two or three ripples from here, right? What will be the impact? I, I think a lot of people, they, they <laughs> I don't think they ask themselves for the sake of what other than it's, you know, uh, but certainly that second and third ripple, yeah. that's, that's higher consciousness yes, um, that, I mean, if you uh, deploy it, you're going to live a better life. You're going to be calmer. You're going to be happier. The people around you are going to be calmer and happier. And if you're in business, you're likely going to be substantially more successful, make many fewer mistakes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. You, you used the word right uh, there just a minute ago, Tal. Most people on this planet, in my experience, would rather be right than get what they say they want. Mm. And, mm. and that is the, that is the big the big obstacle <laughs> right there for just about every relationship and everything's a relationship. Everything is a relationship. Validation's important, right? Yeah. You know, I got, I got to ask, I mean, this is uh, you know, we may end up cutting this. I don't know, but I'm going to go there. I mean, We're not cutting curious, it. You know, 
We're not. Well, may, we, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know what I'm about to ask. I don't care. So, We're not cutting it. This is awesome. He trusts you. He trusts you. I do. <laughs> well, don't. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking, I, I, you know, one of the really, really interesting things that's going on for me in life is watching the business world get increasingly better at less judgment, more compassion, more inclusion, and then watching our political system go the opposite way. And and you know what? It's the same humans, ultimately, right? We're the voters, right? Yep. Half this country, for some reason, is super comfortable with a guy that's, you know, I find offensive. You, you, you can like him. That's fine. Um, And I don't get it. I don't understand how we can be living in this world. And I'm not speaking specifically. I don't get that part. I mean, more broadly, I don't get how we have this dichotomy where on the one hand, we are becoming clearer about what works and doesn't work in interpersonal relations and in general to live a purpose-filled life. And then on the other, we've got a political system that seems to be espousing the polar opposite of that. Do you have any thoughts on that, Blaine? Oh, I got a bunch of them. (laughs) I had a feeling you might. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, It kind of goes back to this whole notion of right. You won't find this in the Webster-Miriam Dictionary, but the definition of right is when the world and everything in it is operating according to my belief systems. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's how I get to feel right. If anybody's doing something that's opposite of my belief systems about how things should be, it feels wrong. And as soon as something feels wrong, I get defensive. I get you know, entrenched. I you know, all kind. I get you know rigid. All that stuff. So we've got a political environment where this is the second part of the you know, my answer to this. Most people would rather be right than get what they say they want, which is collegiality, which is, you know, you know, put the welfare of the nation and the people first. You know, what's going on is the accumulation of power. And who's getting the power? Mm-hmm. Um, this was true. This is still true considerably in business, but it's less true today than it used to be. Most businesses would tend to operate on a, on a, a scarcity consciousness. There's only a, a finite amount of money to have. Maximize your profits and maximize the profit. It's about accumulation. Nature does not work with an accumulation model. Nature works most effectively, and nature is the only truly free market system on the planet. It's the only, yeah, there's no constraints. It's just a free market. Nature works off of off, off of a mindset. I'll just kind of anthropomorphize, uh, anthropomorphize this, a mindset of distribution. Everything in, in everything in nature serves as a center of distribution. Yep. Nothing serves as a center of accumulation. Our political system is organized around being centers of accumulation. The PACs accumulate as much money as you can. The political powers accumulate as much power as you can. And accumulation is toxic if it's allowed to be unbridled. Absolutely. Nothing in nature can accumulate forever. I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you added that sentence because I think look, ultimately capitalism is about accumulation, toxicity is excess. And yes. I think that's that's what you're saying. I mean, ultimately, look, I mean, people want to follow leaders. That's that's mm-hmm. true in business, it's true, you know, it's true in politics for sure. It's it's when things turn from for the again, you know, for the sake of what I love, I'm gonna, you know, for the sake of what, and the second and the third ripple, um, it, I'm, I'm gonna deploy that in my life. I got to tell you, Blaine, I think that's great. Now, if you haven't written about it, you should. In fact, we have a blog on the Braving Business podcast on our website, www.bravingbusiness.com, 
And I would love it if you would be kind enough to write something about that for our blog. I'd love to share it with very happy to. I think yeah, it'd be amazing. Yeah. But you know, it it it, it clear. It's clear to me that that thought of uh, second and third ripple, and for the sake of what, um, is too myopic in our political system today. It is, and it that needs is. to change. And I don't know how to change it. I mean, you 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 introduced compassionate capitalism um, and and made that a, a commonly used term. What do we need to do so that democracy has you know some other word attached to it that maybe returns us to some sort of, you know, it's not comedy because it, comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y. It's not that because it's not just for the sake of appearances. I'm, I'm, it's how do we return to a place where we are moving in the same direction and we are not each other's enemies? I mean. Yep. We, I think, and this is just my bias and uh, my perception on this, but in the political domain, we have lost connection to a uh, a unifying, if you will, um, for the sake of what it used to be, you know, for the sake of a democratic yeah, uh, uh, model. Yeah, we were the yeah. The Is that because we we had an enemy? I mean, you know, was the fact that we had an enemy, uh, you know, for the mo- for most of our existence, it was you know the Soviet Union. Yeah. Yeah. And they seemed well, evil and were more evil than certainly communism was well, far worse than capitalism, right? So is, is that what it is? I mean, do we need a foil? The human, yeah, there, there's an old organizational development joke that goes something to the effect of we went away, we designed the perfect organization, and then we screwed it up when we put people in it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's kind of what's going on. The founding fathers and uh, designed this perfect model. I mean, you know, they they used the uh, you know, Athenian, you know, Greek uh, structures to to build this thing. Uh, but you know, the edifice of America as it was originally formulated. Uh, I mean, if you kind of take a look at some broad brush strokes here, I'm not talking just about male centric or anything else. But the idea of democracy or white centric or white centric, absolutely. Uh, but the, the the large brush strokes of democracy were were present, um, and there were admonitions that Franklin talked about, that uh, Jefferson talked about, uh, about the encroachment of biases around re- religion, uh, you know, creeping into the government. It doesn't have a place there. About money, uh, as soon as money starts coming in, all bets are going to be off. I mean, so there. There were admonitions about how to how to safeguard this model, this ideal, and that for the sake of what was something that was aspirational. And we've gotten so far away from the aspiration right now. I mean, you look at you know the political parties; it's about a, you know, getting power so we can jam the other guy, yep. so we can get our agenda put in place here. Well, our agenda doesn't necessarily you know translate into the wealth. Or the health and well-being of of the country, of the population, of the world. Wow, Blaine. I uh, first of all, thank you for all that insight. Um, thank you for everything that you've said on this on this episode because it's it's been awesome. I um I when I went to college, I, one of my minors was philosophy. Right, so you dropped a whole bunch of names today: Marcus Aurelius and and Kierkegaard and like. You know, 
so many of them, right? Where I was like, oh, okay, I got to remember what all those uh, philosophical bents were. Um, I'll be I'll be honest and say I've never read either of them. Oh no, there's, <laughs> of course I've there's heard a, the names, but right, yeah, you know, Jeremy Bentham Sorry. And, and utilitarianism yeah. and whatever, right? It's it's all great, and so it it really it really gets me going. I would love to understand or know what your favorite quote is. Hmm. But put him on the spot, why don't you? Pete? I know. Yeah. Well, you know, that, 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 yeah, he did that to me. By the way, he was interviewing me, and he's like, "What <laughs> well, is your favorite quote?" There, there's two of them. There's please, two. Of them. One please. is mine, and another mm-hmm. one is Gandhi's. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the, look at the company the he's keeping. Yeah. I, I love that. Well, look at I, I, like, I think that. put myself right at that level. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and I talked about humility. So yeah. <laughs> that's the other shirt, Gandhi and me. Exactly. Right, sorry, that's that's right. Uh, but Gandhi talked about being the change that you want to see in the world, mm. and I think that really yeah, everything is a reflection of the internal state, uh, both individually and collectively. So if we want a different world out there, that different world lives in here, which goes to my quote, which is, "It's already happened. I just haven't arrived yet." Mm. Whatever. It may be. I've got an idea. I've got an ideal. Compassionate capitalism for me is an ideal. Now, will it be realized in my lifetime? Probably not. That's not the point. What action can I take today to move myself closer to it is, is what I'm interested in. It already exists. I just haven't arrived. It already exists. We just haven't arrived. Everything is everything that we encounter on this planet has been invented twice. First as an idea, and then second in physical form. Oh, I love that. And you start with the ideation. It's already there. It's not about creating it. It's about manifesting it. If I could get out, out onto that, you know, that transcendental limb yeah, and yeah. Uh, kind of work Manifest with the law it. of attraction, which I don't want to go into, but it's, it, it exists. You know, so manifest, we're always manifesting something. We can't not manifest an experience in life. It already exists in my consciousness and it gets writ large out there in my experience in the world. Well, be be so, the change you be be the change makes me think in in the modern context there is a young and uh i think brilliant poet writer and thinker by the name of young pueblo the young is spelled u uh y u n g young pueblo uh, who i highly recommend if 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 this Pueblo's, audience yeah. uh, doesn't know who he is follow him on social media uh pick up his books uh and he talks about exactly that essentially he says you know the the Changing the world starts with each and every one of us making a commitment to change ourselves first, um, and um, and then and then then coming together collectively uh, becomes becomes easier. Now, I, I think I, I don't think he's a uh, I don't think he's naive either, right? Just as you, I don't think anyone has an expectation that we're going to reach some sort of uh, nirvana or some you know it, it's not happening, right? Um, but that's not the goal. The goal. That's better. not the goal. It really isn't yeah. the goal. The goal yeah. is, can, you know, Oscar Wilde, I Continuous think. Continuous improvement. Yeah, the, 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 the striving for utopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I first wrote the book, uh, Compassionate Capitalism, people went, yeah, yeah, that's utopia. What are you talking about? And Oscar Wilde said, without the striving of, you know, the continual striving towards utopias, progress is never occurring. And once we land on the shore of that imagined utopia, we look out again, and there's another one. And so we go out to that utopia. And yeah, why wouldn't I want to have utopia as part of my experience in living? Well, and you know what? That that brings to a word to mind that I think I would encourage anyone in the audience 
to reflect on whether that word represents how they think. Because I think that is often destructive, and that's cynicism. Mm-hmm. Cynics never make things better. They only tell you how things can get worse or why things won't work. Mm. And uh, if if you are one or if you have people in your environment, particularly if you're trying to build something, a business, a life, cynics, you've got to figure out how to limit their influence on your life, if not altogether remove it. Yeah, Would you agree? I would. Yeah. And, you know, and it's interesting yeah, because cynicism is different than criticism. Mm, definitely. Uh, and yes, you know, there's a, there's an energy to cynicism that just kind of goes, yeah, it's, just, it's yeah, toxic. It, it's the why even start. That's what cynicism is to it's me. The why, cynicism even is start. why even start. And you yeah. know what you, if, if with that mindset, nothing gets done, nothing. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Friends, our guest today was the incredible uh, Blaine Bartlett. He's a best-selling author, the author of the number one international bestseller, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. His newest book is The Leadership Mindset Weekly. I'm going to order it online right after this interview is over. He is the co-host of Office Hours on Apple TV. He is just an incredible thinker, an incredible human being. Um, and it's been an utter, utter, utter privilege uh, to spend an hour with you today. I'm so grateful. It's been amazing. Uh, and I'm sure our audience... Uh, you know, is walking away from this with one, two, 10, 15 pearls of wisdom that can make their lives better. Um, and we're grateful for that. And you know what we're going to do, PJ? We're, we're, gonna, we're going to write them down. We're going to have the, the top 10 pearls of wisdom from the Blaine Bartlett episode. We're not going to put them on a t-shirt, but maybe a poster. What do you think about that? <laughs> I'll buy that one. There you go. Blaine Bartlett, thank you so much. Hey, Tal, PJ, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. I love it. Thank you. Thank I you. I love what you guys And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for being a part of the Braving Business Podcast listening audience. Be on the lookout for our weekly interviews with fascinating leaders in business and gain insight into their mindset of how they took to braving business in their own lives and careers. Check us out on YouTube, LinkedIn, and all of your favorite streaming services. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time on the Braving Business Podcast. 